I'm going to ask you to do something. Are you ready? Whatever you do, don't think of an elephant. If, like anyone else, the first thing you thought about was... An elephant. That's because the elephant is a frame. Chelsea, we know all this already. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's how we started. Repeat. Our fir- first, this is not a rerun. Uh, that's how this we started is, our first podcast, how we embarked on our We Can Talk About Journey. Uh-huh. Um, and we wanted to spend this episode uh, talking about reflecting past back on it because it's been almost a year. It is. It's been 11 months since we started. Yeah. Um, 10 months since we put our first episode up. Oh, we right, did a, we, we started a, a month of prep. Right. And um, and we are going to we're, – we're doing this reflection because we're actually going to take a break from the podcast for a while. We got too busy, people. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I – I have to say, when I look back on it, it's yeah. kind of hilarious. When we started the podcast, you were extremely underemployed. Yes. Well, I, I had just been laid off. You'd just been laid yeah. off. I was really underemployed. Yes. Um, freelancing for two different jobs. Right. Where I was getting uh, some work at both of them. Right. And now we are a little overemployed. Right. And I, I only had one, like, film project at that time, like a half of one. And now I have, like, three right. and a half. Right. And then overemployed advertising life. Yes. And uh, I am fully slash overemployed. But the kids have gotten easier to take care of. So <laughs> that's, like, just a little bit, little bit of a... The scales are tipping. Yeah. It's just, like, they're just a little, like, as they get older, and, like, Lucas is, like, almost five now. Now, so he's like a little self-sufficient. Uh huh. It's just so at least, that, a at least that. If I had a newborn, I would have jumped out a window. But. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah with yeah. our overemployment and a lot of projects going on, we're gonna take a little break and and we're, we hope to come back. We all maybe we won't come back. Yeah. We, we have. I like to think that you have no idea where life is gonna take you, and so just keep the doors open. Roseanne came back after twenty years. I so w- when it was time, you know, and and we. Still started it because we there was a time and place where it really made a lot of sense to do it and it was a wonderful journey and this time and place is just there are other um not not better things just like other things that we have to um there's other things we have to attend to yes um but i can pretty much guarantee that if impeachment proceedings begin (laughs) exactly we will be back for at least a one-off. We were we're, we're we're holding the door open for every and special. And we may episode. be drinking whiskey the entire time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah well, The thing is, we put a lot of work into each episode. We don't like we had joked that like it's not just me and you getting in the booth and like hashing things out. We have like these very elaborate um, outlines. We read a lot of stuff going into them. Mm-hmm. We prep for them, and we're like, oh, we should have made it easier on ourselves. <laughs> we should have had a podcast or just the two of us. <laughs> We just show up, turn the mic on. And say, what do you want to talk about today? (laughs) But no, no, we had to like do actual programming. And we're like, well. (laughs) And that's been really awesome. And I'm so glad we've done it that way. Um, And so when we have space in our lives to be able to do that again, we will try to do that then. Yeah. And or if Trump gets impeached, because then we'll make (laughs) we'll We'll make the time. We'll clear our schedule. I think the outline for that episode just writes itself. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We'll have to put the work into that one. Uh, Let's let's talk about journeys, because we always talk about um, movies. That's our our main love Mm -hmm. narrative. Um, What a journey means. Right. And so my favorite movie is Lawrence of Arabia. Still haven't seen it. Still haven't seen it. It's okay. <laughs> Sorry, Michael. But the whole point of Lawrence Arabia is that you meet young 
Lawrence. He's mm-hmm. a he's a British officer in Arabia, obviously. Who played Lawrence Ara- of Arabia? Peter O'Toole. Oh, okay. One my favorite Peter Classic. O'Toole story. He, he gets passed over for the Oscar. Who did he lose it to that year for Lawrence of Arabia? No idea. So he loses it for Lawrence of Arabia okay. unjustly. He gets nominated like a couple more times. He was nominated about five years ago for this movie Venus or something. Mm-hmm. Where he played like a pedophile. I didn't see it. Um, and then they gave him a Lifetime Achievement Award because he never won an Oscar. Oh. And he's accepting the, uh, the Lifetime Achievement Award. He's like staring at the thing. He goes, you know, I'm still trying to win one of these outright, you know. Whoa. <laughs> 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 like, damn love, right you are. I damn. love that he called it out. <laughs> damn right you are. Uh, Good for I, you. I thought you were going to say it was the um, the uh, the issue that Russell Crowe and Denzel Washington both had. What was that? Well, they both lost for the movie they should have won for. Yes. And, and then, then they... won for a movie they shouldn't have won for. Yeah. So, like, I think Russell Crowe lost for... Um, Insider? No. It was, like, lost for Gladiator and won for Beautiful Mind or the other way around. Yeah. And and you would think that I would remember which was which because one was clearly, like, oh, I can't believe he won for that. Yes. And like, oh, I can't believe he lost for that. Right. And with Denzel, it was, like... Um, I think he won for Training Day. Yeah, Training Day. He was great in Training. <laughs> yeah. He was great in Training Day. But whatever movie was the year before when he was nominated, and it escapes me at the moment, it was like he should have totally won for that. Yeah. But I actually think Russell Crowe and Denzel were back to back. So when Russell Crowe was winning for a movie he shouldn't have won, yeah. Denzel was losing for a movie he should have won. Right. <laughs> so it was like, oh god, well, guys, we can't keep doing this like yeah. domino effect of like. Giving it a year later. Yeah. It, it, it's also silly to have best of awards in art. Also, it's Oscars silly. are almost fake. I don't think people... I didn't really realize that until recently. What's that? It's, like, completely political. It's, like, a contract. Like, the concept of winning an Oscar is is not is not really real. Yeah. If you're, like, entrenched in the Hollywood, like, way of how things function... Right. It's not. It's not really real. You, you know how? Um, so in advertising, they have like advertising awards, uh-huh. and so everybody like like likes to say they're an, an award winning writer, oh, right. and, and that that's when the conceit of it is so clear. Because like the industry creates like fourteen award shows, and then hands out awards in like forty seven categories oh. to like fifteen different agencies. So, so there's like gold and silver and bronze and then like every agency like, we won 47 awards this year. I'm like oh my god you, you guys awarded them to yourselves you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like do you and that's how the, the Oscars were invented by the industry. It's like we're going to give ourselves Well they awards. were invented as a giant yeah. um, advertising platform for movies that had just come exactly. out that year. Yeah. That was seriously why they were invented. Yeah. It was like wait a minute what if we get a bunch of celebrities in a room We people get to look at them Yes. and then all of these movies that just came out and some of them are still in the theaters, right. we can see their name over and over and over again. It's this huge yeah. advertising thing. So uh, You know what's yeah. interesting? Because then the Oscar speeches became, have over the years become very political, right? Well, this last year, definitely. Yeah. But I, I want last year. I want to say, like, some of the speeches are like, and we talked about this, like the, the struggle between an ideal and then putting something into practice, right? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the speeches are like, this is the ideal and, and it's beautiful and it's, you know, in its in its eloquence or whatever that the way that it is expressed. But then, what are you supposed to do off of this guy's thirty second accepting it for the? But that's why Frances McDormand's speech was more important than anyone else's. Exactly. Yeah. She was saying, 
this is how we change the industry. So she had a value, and the value was inclusion. And right. then she had a very concrete thing she could put her foot down on. And she right? could tell people. What is, what is an inclusion writer for those following along? Because <laughs> she's like, two words for you, inclusion writer. writer. And then she went off the stage. I was but like, the what? The thing is, is it, <laughs> yeah. the people who she yeah. was talking to knew right. what it meant. Yes. So an inclusion writer is something that goes in your contract um, that people who have a lot of power and weight or mm-hmm. are going to make a bunch of money off a project, right. they can put this into their own contract. Yes. So Frances McDormand can have in her boilerplate contract. The, the rider refers to just like a contract rider. Yeah. A, a, addendum to the normal contract. Well, like a, a band. Like, yeah. um, so <laughs> there's, uh, bands have riders all the time. Yeah. So they show up to play a gig and it's like someone, a PA backstage reads the rider and it's like, I have to get 30 cases of Natty Light. Yeah. Because that's what the rider says. Like, yeah. Your rider can say whatever you want. My favorite Hollywood rider, I forgot the character actor's name, but there's a character actor and he spells his name with like a, like a Balkan symbol. Okay. You know, like it gets like he gets translated into the Roman alphabet, obviously. But like he has a rider in all his contracts that like uh-huh. his name on screen has to keep that Balkan. You know, it's like the C with like the other C underneath it. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, and so he has like all his contracts is like stipulated that when they put his credit on screen, they have to use like that oh, real hilarious. Letter. Is it Skarsgård? No, it's not Skarsgård. No, like no, a... it's a character actor. It's not like a. It's oh. not even like a famous guy. <laughs> but you see him in everything. <laughs> I forget his name. And his but, name always has that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So these writers, they they go into your contract, and if they want to hire you, they have to fulfill your writer. Right. And if an actor, if a big name actor puts into their, if they put an inclusion writer uh-huh. onto their contract, it says that if you hire me, you have to do your due diligence to hire a an ethnically diverse or just a diverse cast or a diverse crew or both and it can it can even go as far to say not just due diligence like it can say 50% of the crew needs to be either female or not white yeah um i think though the actual inclusion writer in practice is a little softer than that uh i think the one really? we're using yeah it's more for non-essential parts um, and so it's not necessarily like the, the main cast you have to make it diverse, well, but like all the extras have to represent. The thing is, is it can but, be a variety. I, but you, that's, the, that's the floor. That's yeah. the floor. It's not, it's not the maximum. It's the minimum. You, it's, yeah, it's yeah. something, any, anybody who puts into their own contract when they're a freelance employee, right. they can put whatever they want in their yeah. own contract. Right. Like you, like there's the best part in Notting Hill when Julia Roberts is like, yes, you can show my left buttocks, but not the upper cleft right <laughs> of yeah. my cheek. Right. Like that stuff's real. <laughs> yeah. So you can put into your contract, there must be three characters with names that are black. Yes. Right. So you can do stuff like that. And by putting these inclusion writers, if all of the huge celebrities in Hollywood were to put these inclusion writers to make more diverse cast and crew, mm-hmm. then everybody has to do it because yeah. those because everybody wants to hire those huge actors. Yeah. The, the NFL has a nice precedent and it's a case study. It's called the Rooney Rule. Do you know about this? No. So anytime there's a uh, head coach opening, I think even the GM, like a front office, like a big profile role, okay. you have to interview at least one minority candidate. Because they had discovered, like, even though the NFL is, like, 70% black right now, like, the coaches were, like, 99% white. And, like, what what is going on here that there's no translation? The NBA doesn't have that problem. You have 
um, many, many black coaches. Um, well, typically, that's what I always found interesting yeah. about those sports. In, in in the NBA, the coaches are almost always ex-players. Yeah. But in NFL, they don't seem to always be ex-NFL players. No, no, not at all. Yeah. I mean, Belichick never played. Uh, you know, so, always... I don't know. Yeah. I, it, it's a curious. It's curious how those sports differ so much yeah. in that way. And uh, I, I follow a lot of European soccer, and um, the requirement in European soccer is that not only you're an ex player, but you have to be really handsome. <laughs> <laughs> There's like, why are they? I like my sister whenever she like, I just like, why are they always so handsome? Soccer like, all, players are always handsome. Yeah, like you. And uh, there's this guy that's playing for the Spanish national team. Um, Shabi Alonso, he's like super handsome guy. And then uh, he was talking the other day, he goes, I'm going to retire from um, from playing and I'm become a coach. And everyone's like, of course you can become a coach. He's the most handsome guy in the team. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, they just got the handsome guys. It's like, all right. Because they can put their face out there yeah. on all the posters. Because they're always wearing like these bespoke suits on the sideline. Uh-huh. They're like, you know, like the Italian guys. They got like the, the hair quaff. Like they like really look good on the side. There's some like fat guys and trainers, as they call them in England. Like uh-huh. like Sam Allardyce is not like a good looking guy. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, he's like out there. He's not wearing a suit. He's like wearing like a, his gut is hanging out like this jumper. I'm like, all right, who let you in? But, they like, put them on the side. Yeah. Oh but my like God. the Pep Guardiola's of the world, you know, like the, you know, the... Um, they're really, really handsome guys. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> but so football made this rule, like you have to interview. It doesn't say you have to hire a minority candidate. You have to right. interview one. And just putting it into the habit of doing it yeah. led to more black coaches being um, hired. Just, just, just the rhythm of it, you know? Right. So the inclusion writer is great because we, we know that just getting into the rhythm of doing it. The NBA has another example. The NBA had, um, they actually studied NBA referees and the percentage of fouls they called on white players versus black players. What? Yeah. And they discovered that the refs were like systematically biased against black players. They call fouls more frequently. And you're black- kidding. No, no. And they, they, they pull the referees together. Like, listen, we don't think you're all racist, but this is the data. Right. You know, we just want you to be aware of it. Right. And then after they like brought all the referees together, the phenomenon went away. <gasps> You know, and it wasn't like they didn't make like uh, much ado about it. Yeah, but like just little things like that that get people into the habit of doing it. Yeah, it goes a long way. So I I don't want to like when I said like the uh, the inclusion writer was less than that mandatory. Right. It doesn't mean like it wasn't a great thing. It is a phenomenal thing because it gets people into the habit of doing it on a minimal level, and that encourages more. Right. And like look at Lena Way. Lena Way. she rose up through the ranks. She was like the production assistant for Ava DuVernay like 10 years ago. You mm-hmm. know, you had someone just having her on set working on something encouraged behavior that like developed her career. And now right. she has something much better going for her years later. Right. So it's a great thing, you know, on in its minimalness. It's doing the minimal first step is wonderful because it encourages habits that encourage bigger and bigger things. So remind me how this ties back into Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we went the, way off. Anyway. No, the transformation of the journey. Yeah, we, yeah, the transformation of the journey. So he, we, you first meet him, and he's like a twenty-seven-year-old British officer, and he has an idea of what Arabia should be. Give Arabia. So the Arabia was owned by the, not owned; it was occupied by the Ottoman Empire, who the Turkish um, people. 
people. Okay. Um, and he goes, we're going to free Arabia and give it back to the Arabs from the Ottoman Empire. Because okay. Britain was at war with the Ottoman Empire. And we have British officers, but I'm going to raise an Arab army to do it. Everyone's like, you're crazy. You can't get them all to work together. They're all from different tribes. They're not going to like get along. You can't cross the desert. The desert is too hot. You'll never get to... Um, to the port, Agrabah, the port city that you have to attack, it's just not going to work. And so Lawrence is like, no, I'm going to do it. You know, and he has an idea of himself as mm-hmm. the British officer. And it's great because there's like that transformation of um, as he raises the Arab army, he goes into the desert. He's challenged by the desert. There's that scene where he has to go back for that boy and he's just like the, the anvil of the sun is upon him. And everybody continued. So they were in this caravan and, and one of his uh, young... Um, I guess servant or soldier, we'll call him, right? He had fall, fallen off his camel, right? And he was lost. And he turns mm-hmm. around, he wakes up after, like, traveling and goes, hey, where did that guy go? He goes, oh, he's back in the desert. Leave him there. He's going to die. There's nothing we could do for him. And then, you know, Lawrence Arabia's like, no, I'm going back for him. So he goes back into the desert, like, okay. when it's, like, 120 degrees. And everyone keeps going forward. And, like, well, that crazy British guy's going to die. They don't know anything about him. He finds the officer, you know, very dramatic, and he brings him back. And he finally makes it back to the, the camp at night, and he's exhausted by the entire process. And they take his clothes off so they can wash him. And then Omar Sharif, great Omar Sharif, young, young Omar Sharif, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> takes his clothes, his British officer clothes, and throws them into the fire. And when he wakes up the next morning, they give him, like, the Arab garb. And he's wearing, like, the white robes. Oh. Right? And he goes, oh, now you're one of us. Right? And then he leads them to victory in the in the desert. And then, like, the second half of the movie is whether or not he's really of Arabia. You know? Like, uh-huh. oh, but he's still British. You know? And so there's a struggle. So it's not like... Um, but he was transformed by the journey. The whole point of yeah. going on the journey. And, and every story is about being transformed by the journey. But I, I think about... Yeah. That's... The the beautiful part about that is that the fact that they burned his clothes and then gave him that robe, yeah, it's almost as clear of a metaphor as Snowpiercer. <laughs> Explain. <laughs> because anytime you want to show that a character has transformed, yes, changing their clothes is literally the the most obvious way to do that. Yeah, and it's it's it works. It's great. It's right. wonderful, and it's beautiful. And I'm not saying I'm not right, talking yeah. down about it. Yeah. I'm just saying like you know how Snowport Piercer was like a, a movie about class, and yes. you worked your way through each class system. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this uh, is like not allegorically, but literally. <laughs> but literally, <laughs> yeah. this was like he transformed in the middle yeah. of the desert, and they were like literally they burned his officer clothes yes. and gave him an Arab robe. Yeah, and when he shows up back at the British headquarters after winning the battle, and like. Why are you wearing that? You know, and you're, you know, it, it was so. It's like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a real transformation. It's great, and, and that's how I, I, I would hope when we started the podcast that it was a journey, and I hope that we would have been transformed by the journey, and I think that's why I brought it up. I know? think we have been transformed, yeah. and I hope that anybody who's listened to right. at least some, if not yeah. all, has also maybe been transformed in a little way, or right. has seen ways where their views on frames or right. on politics or just on like understanding it right. has changed. Like I'll for one completely admit that when we first started this podcast, I was like, oh my gosh, I mean, I never studied politics in school. Yeah. I have an interest and, and I have certainly have opinions, right. but also like how I, I don't even know if I can understand all of the politics going on out there. And 
let's be real, there's still a lot I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> but there's also, I've gained so much more confidence in understanding the general framework of politics, but also how frames work and the fact that I can have my own opinions and form frames out of those. Right, right. So I, I certainly feel more confident in talking about before you did Both. this, were, were, you thought it was just a surface understanding or like now when you talk about like when, where do you see frames you're talking about? Now that you see yeah. That? yeah. So I think before we did this, I didn't spot frames. Like right. I, I certainly wasn't seeing them. And now when a politician comes out and they talk about something, yeah. like I wish I could come up with a specific example, but like Trump, for example, mm-hmm. Okay, I think on Twitter just yesterday or the day before, he said something about oil, and he's making this whole statement about oil. Right. Can't do that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we know that everything that comes out of Trump's mouth is a frame with also a huge lack of information. Yes. Because I read that tweet, and I'm like, okay, if I was willing to just, like, take take that tweet at face value, and then I'd be like, okay, he's saying OPEC is bad. Trump is pure uninformed frame. Yeah, right. Yeah, completely uninformed frame. <laughs> yeah. So then, if I go and I wanted to read more information, it wouldn't even take that long yeah. to just read some basic information to understand who's OPEC, what is he talking about, and and then form my own opinion right. instead of just buying into his frame. Yeah, and what that has because his frames are so obvious and blatant and so clearly, I can spot that them being so uninformed. Most of the time when I know, okay, wait, that's definitely not real. Yeah. So that has made me go, okay, well, who else is putting out frames? Like Hillary Clinton's got her own frames and, you know, Nancy Pelosi's got her own frames. And so when I see her frames, I shouldn't take their frames for face value at face value either. Just because I consider myself a Democrat, I they're always going to be putting out frames. Right. And so I look at their frame and then I read more information about it and I decide like, okay, that's still a frame Mm -hmm. and that's still showing your perspective on the idea. Yeah. Where do I fully align with, do I align with that? Do I partially align with that? Right. And so now I'm seeing frames all the time. Yeah. And I don't know. It certainly made me just more aware of them. Yeah. And it's made me realize Mm -hmm. that like I... Don't don't take everything at face value. Do you think they're more powerful now that you understand them, or do you think they're for maybe you personally? They have less power over you because you can deconstruct them. But do you have more respect for how much power they have? Yeah, Yeah. I think it's both. Like, um, there's certainly still a lot of frames. I'm sure that get me, and I'm like, oh man, I believe that. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, that's a frame. They sneak up on you. (laughs) Yeah, but I certainly am. See now, when we see a good one, like for example, Times Up, Me Too, and um, the kids, the Parkland kids. Yeah, absolutely. You see those, and you're like, wow, those are really strong frames. Yeah they're doing a really good job at, at getting their point of view out there. Yeah. Um, the uninformed part of the frame, you know, it's like we we always want to take the next step and make sure, like, we always, like, fact check our own frames on, you know, and we're like, okay, this is what I believe and this is how I'm going to support it. Mm-hmm. And, like, that Trump never bothers with the information, just makes him so light on his feet. 
<laughs> like he's always on the offense because he never right. has to like even things like uh, China and Taiwan that always comes to mind like understanding why Taiwan is both a part of China and not a part of China requires like so much complexity of thought yes that and then he goes he goes I'm just gonna call the, the president of Taiwan I don't know why nobody else did it I'm like if you had spent <laughs> <laughs> 10 minutes being explained the history <laughs> or of China. Or if someone on your staff <laughs> yeah. spent 10 minutes. You would understand why this is like uh, those Chinese um, finger cuff problems. <laughs> like you, you cannot unravel this problem in one phone call. Right. <laughs> you know? That, I mean, a lot of like life and politics and all of it is very yeah. complicated. Right. And... And it's very nuanced. And so there is no black and white answer to everything. And what's frustrating is that Trump, because he can sort of just say whatever he wants, whether any of it's real or not, he can say, I'm going to do this and then take it back the next day. The fact that he's just this walking like tweet machine, um, it makes everyone else living in reality very uncomfortable. Mm. Um, because now enough people are just sort of like, okay, he is full of crap, but he's also in charge. Yeah. So every time he says something with no understanding of what he just said, do we take it seriously? I I, I think it's, it's funny. I think his party has stopped taking it seriously. The people have stopped taking it seriously and the courts have stopped taking it seriously. Yeah. So it's just like, they're even arguing in court in some cases like, well, you know, like his Twitter handle is like a, a performative in some sense, you know, like it doesn't reflect actual... It kind of reminds me of, um, what is it, Alex Jones? Yeah. When he was being sued, he said, uh, or when he was going through the courts with his for his divorce. Yeah, his divorce and he, proceedings. And yeah. he said, like, oh, I don't really believe any of the stuff I say on TV. It's just performance art. That's the character I'm playing. Yeah, it's character I'm playing. Which I kind of, I kind of bought his argument a little bit. I do too, but yeah. the problem is the character he's playing is convincing a bunch of people th- to believe in things. Yes. For real. Yes. Yes, that's true. And that true. Yeah. so, in that case, uh, that would be very concerning if. We all watched the Hunger Games, yeah, and we believed for real right. that we should round up children and kill them. Yes, for sure. It's the last episode I had to bring up Hunger Games. <laughs> yeah. So that's very concerning. Yeah. And the problem is, if Trump's presidency is a piece of performance art, right, that is not fair to the citizens of this country. Yeah. It's because Comey talked about him being like, is he unfit to be president? He goes, he's morally unfit to be president, but we elected him. You know, <laughs> it was like, <laughs> how do you feel about the Comey stuff? Um, this whole last week, he's doing interviews. He's got the book out. I don't like it. I don't either. I don't like it at all. I mean, I it's this weird thing where we feel this need to get him, get Trump. And so he's the only guy that can like get him. So it's like we're gonna elevate Comey. I don't think I don't think the director of the FBI should be a celebrity in any capacity. Yeah, it's it's, it's a public service, and we should go back to our public servants being public servants. Something that. about this feels really gross. But then at the same time, I guess the question is: if the president of the United States is now it's a celebrity, yeah, should is the only way to fight a celebrity with another celebrity i I think the opposite i think we're gonna fight him with the most boring robert Mueller. (laughs) 
No, no, no. I, uh, you mean I thought you meant like the election? Yeah, fight celebrity with celebrity. That's yeah. what I mean. Like, yeah. can he only be taken down with another celebrity? Because we're now. But then he they- can only be taken down by elections. Let's be honest. That's what's going to come down to. It's going to come down to. Uh, you don't think he's going to get impeached? No, I don't think he's. I don't think <sighs> even if he gets impeached, there are multiple processes to impeachment. Like Clinton was impeached, right? But then he wasn't kicked out of office. I, I I would put money that he would not be kicked out of office by a legislative process before his four-year term is up. We're now, do you think he would resign? Do you think if it got so ugly he would resign, or do you think he's so stubborn that he would not? I don't think he would ever. I think he would bring the—he would be like Samson. He would bring the house down upon him before he— <laughs> I feel like we've actually had this conversation on the pod yeah. before, but I'm still still rest, I'm still wrestling with the same question over and over again. You know, the, the, And the question is, yeah. how does it end? That's, yes. that's what I keep going back to. This has to end at some point. How is it going to end? I want to know the end of the movie before we get there. Right. Because this part, the middle part, is so painful. Yeah. And I was actually just talking about this with an artist that I work with. Um, and I was saying, oh, this part feels so painful. And it feels really hopeless. And, it almost, and part of the stuff that feels hopeless is like, if the president of the United States is caught in this many scandals including having an affair and paying hush money to a porn star and none of it matters, then nothing matters. Then like life doesn't matter. And then it escalates and this just feels really, really hopeless. And my artist who's, he's an artist and one of the smartest people I've ever met. He said, the reason this feels so painful is because we're living in a moment of almost. Mm. And... I said, I'm like, you know, I don't understand what that means. And he goes, that moment when the helicopter comes and the person's got to like, it's like, you know, it's the rock and yes, he's standing yeah. on the roof and he's <laughs> right. got to r- r- jump and grab the at bottom of the helicopter to either like, like live or yeah. bring the helicopter down with his giant muscles. It's going to be one uh, of the That was the Captain America scene, right? That, that was a, oh, also yeah. I think Fast and the Furious. Also, I think San Andreas Fault. Oh, he did in San Andreas <laughs> like, I think Fault. He's done it I in, think like, I've seen Andreas Fault. On San Andreas Fault, doesn't he get to the roof for like the earthquake? Or is that like somebody else does? Yeah, I don't he know. He picks up his wife. I, I've seen that movie. I still don't know what happened in it. I don't ahead. either. <laughs> yeah. And I live in California, so you'd think I'd know. Yeah. But uh, yeah, like that moment. And then right before right when they reach for that helicopter they either almost miss it or almost don't miss it or like almost miss it or almost catch it and and that moment where you're just unsure of almost of oh we're either almost in a society where absolutely nothing matters and the kardashians are queens or we're almost in a society where the the citizens of this country stand up and say, no, we want, we want like justice and we want politics to matter and we want the constitution to matter again. And we're in this moment of almost that seems to be going on for a very long time. That is why this moment feels so painful. Mm, That, that unresolved tension of it. Yes. And so I'm desperate to find out what happens next for sure yeah and he he himself keeps us in that loop right yeah you know, he loves oh, dominating yeah. the news cycle and then the, the second something tries to stick there's like a new thing yeah you know and and he's been playing us for like two years now i mean he announced his candidacy in like 2015 it's been so long it's, been so long. <laughs> <laughs> it's well, I, just trapped trapped in the almost tra- the helicopter has been hovering over <laughs> us 
<laughs> and the roof has been collapsing for three years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we're just, we're, a nation stretches his arms out to it. <laughs> it's kind of like in uh, Doctor Strange. You see yeah. Doctor Strange? Yes. Okay, you know the part where he goes. <laughs> I, I think I saw <laughs> A lot of movies where I saw them, like, they were not that memorable. Uh, yeah. Dr. Strange was fun, It was though, okay. Rachel McAdams was seriously, seriously underused, but it's okay. Oh, I thought she was seriously boring in that movie. Yeah, and that's what I mean. Like, her character was boring. Like, they should, they should have done more with her. Anyway. Okay. Also, maybe it's a combo. Yeah. But um, I'm talking about the part where he keeps, he, like, twists the clock. It's at the end. Uh-huh. And he goes, Dormammu, I've come to make a bargain. Yes. And it just keeps happening. Dormammu, yep. I've come to make a bargain. Yes. And we are in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's just marching out. Doctor Strange somewhere turns the And Dormammu kills clock. him. And he comes and turns the clock. And he comes back out and kills him. And that's and what I'm saying. Yeah. Trump decided to run for president and he turned the Dormammu <laughs> clock what is it called the the, the, the infinity the, jump the infinity time thing. Yeah. Trump turned the infinity thing yeah. and is like tweeting Let's every about- new tweet is a new start <laughs> yeah that, that's really what it is and he's like you think it's Dormammu I've come to make a bargain, make a bargain. <laughs> that's what I'm gonna say every time I see Trump from now on I'm like Dormammu okay. I'm like no <laughs> just make it end people talk about this all the time the surrealness of the Trump clock like he has melted time for us. It's so yeah. true. Yeah. It, in, in its obsession. We all yeah. ate mushrooms. The yeah. Whole <laughs> the country. whole city. We're all like this. Get it. Get out of our head. Did I ever tell you the dream I had like a week after the election? I don't think so. It's just a nightmare where Trump was in my house <laughs> oh my and God. he wouldn't leave. <laughs> I'm like, you have to leave. And he goes, no, I'm not going anywhere. I'm like, no, this is my house. You have to leave. And it wasn't even a metaphor. It wasn't even an allegory. It was just actually <laughs> in, in my house and you won't leave. <laughs> and I had it like my subconscious had to process it. I had to like yell at him. I'm like, leave my house already. <laughs> when will this end? Oh, my God. Well, no one rid us of this meddlesome president. <laughs> and th- that's that's what, like, Mueller is like, Mueller will save us. He will rid us of this guy from uh, our house. But, like, maybe Mueller he will won't. not save us. Call me will not say it. We will save ourselves. We'll have elections. I mean, and, that's yeah. that's still a, a hopeful, positive way of looking at it, that yeah. we will save ourselves with elections. Did I was listening to um, uh, A. Martinez on NP- NPR yes. in the morning. Uh-huh. A. Martinez is my jam. Uh-huh. And he was interviewing Eric Garcetti. Nice. My hero. And they were chatting. I met Eric Garcetti in real life once. Did I tell you Really? This? No. Yeah. I was having lunch at the Culver hotel one of my favorite places i love the culver hotel yes and uh it was the day before the election and he was campaigning for measure m that was the one that raised taxes in california to pay for um housing um, for the homeless no um transit infrastructure oh okay measure oh, yeah. h was the homeless h was homeless h for homeless right and for metro i think oh okay yeah. yeah the metro has been a huge pet project for him i think yeah and he goes um can i count on your support for uh measure i mean handing me a bag of mini m&ms <laughs> <laughs> i like you bribing me with these <laughs> and then i asked them uh how to vote for i think it was prop 67 the um pharma drug pricing to match the veterans affair and he was actually against it and he had a very nuanced he goes well they're just going to shift costs somewhere else so it's like a false measure we can address it in a different way oh yeah I bet he was like, wow, this guy actually 
knows what he's talking about. He's probably impressed by you. <laughs> he was trying to get like a photo op and then yeah. like a concerned citizen asked him a real question. He goes, oh, I have to answer this. Okay, hold on. <laughs> Can I shake your hand now and they can take a picture? I'm like, all right, yeah, let's do that. I'll shake your hand and take a picture thing. So I bring him up because A. Martinez was talking to him. I think they were actually talking about the new metro system that's going to go in mm-hmm. in preparation for the Olympics. Right. And... um. A. Martinez was dancing around, like, what's in the future for you next? Mm -hmm. And he goes, because I heard that you were recently in Iowa. Oh, yes. And then Eric Garcetti just went, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. Right. And there was, like, silence. And silence on the radio always feels so deafening. And I was like, what is... And then they quickly moved on to something else. And Mm -hmm. I was like, what was that about? And then I was like, oh, wait a minute. That's the... If you can win in Iowa, you can win anywhere? Yeah. So, I, I mean, they're definitely, everyone keeps saying he's going to run. Well, Iowa's one of the, you know, it's the if, first caucus it's in the nation, first so caucus. it's like New Hampshire and Iowa, right. and so you get that momentum going. So the fact that he stepped foot in Iowa, they're like, what were you doing in Iowa? Well, clearly we know what he was doing in Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he would actually be a pretty good foil to Trump. You think so? He's um, of Mexican descent. His father um, was the DA of Los Angeles for a while. And, His father uh, was the DA for when OJ was tried. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So he's got a little bit like reality TV. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, That's right. He's like a little bit of a celebrity because of that. Yeah. His um, father was played on television multiple times. He's in the Kardashian extended universe. He is? The Kardashian cinematic universe. That's true. <laughs> Um, I bet the Kardashians would yeah. come out and no, they would not. They would not stump for him because they were on the opposite side of that story. Well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they um, uh, he speaks Spanish, but uh-huh. and he's boring. He is pretty boring. Yeah, he's so he's a very boring lifetime politician. Keep the trains. Well, not that's a twisted metaphor, but like. You know, and so he's not like he's not like a big charismatic celebrity. He's kind of like a boring politician. And I don't know if we've talked about this on the pod before, but did you see the ad when um, the freeway had to close for a weekend? Oh, and he sang with the he jazz. Did, yeah. yeah, I think we. And it was slow jazz. <laughs> slow that was jazz. the point because it'd be, you'd be moving really slow on the yeah. freeway. And I was like, "This is so corny." Yeah. And I love it. Yeah, he's got dad <laughs> jokes. <you> yeah. <laughs> and that, that's that's what like you can see him as like the the um the wholesome opposite. Mm-hmm. I mean, like Trump's like I hate everything about liberal America. He points to Eric Garcetti and like, what what do you not like about Eric Garcetti? He's like kind of like a dad jokes, you yeah. know. <laughs> I, but he has a manliness to him that Tim Kaine didn't, because uh, dad jokes immediately took me to Tim Kaine, and Tim Kaine had like this nothing wrong with him. But like Eric Garcetti, um, Tim Kaine was lovely, but he also wasn't someone that you thought would, if the house was burning down, that he could save you. Yes, I certainly don't think I anyone would actually feel that way about Trump, but they would probably think that Trump would like. Pay for a helicopter to come in and <laughs> scoop you up. Get his, get the Trump helicopter. So, Michael, yeah. I talked about in some ways that I feel like I changed in being able to spot some yes. frames. But yeah. how do you feel like you've changed in after doing this podcast? Yeah, it was interesting because, like, I felt like um, for me it was a little bit of a painful time in my life when we started doing the podcast. You know, I had I'd moved out to LA um, with this dream. I had been out here for a couple of years, and it was. It was hard for us. We had a family to support, you know, and it was like um, the first agency I was working at closed down. And then I'm like, oh, this is like, and I remember um, 
that was like a couple years ago. It, so we had been out here for like 15 months, and my agency closed down, and they rounded us up. It was like George Clooney up in the air, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, like they marched us in one after the other. <laughs> they go, All right, who's next? <laughs> you know, you know, uh, it wasn't my first round of layoffs in an advertising agency, but it was my first time on the West Coast. I was new out here. I remember calling up my wife, and I was like, um, uh, babe, I don't know what we're going to do. She was home with Zoe. Um, Zoe was like five months old at the time and my uh-huh. wife hadn't gone back to work yet. And we were just about to put Zoe into daycare so my wife could go back to work. I'm like, oh, I guess we have to uh, move back to New York because like, I, I lost my job. Like, I don't know what we're going to do. And there was like a pause on the phone. She goes, damn it, man, grab a hold of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> she Actually, she says something more vulgar than that, but it's a family show. Grab a hold of something more intimate. <laughs> <laughs> And it was 10 o'clock in the morning. They fire you early. They fire you first thing in the morning. <laughs> oh, my God. Or they lay you off. It's, it was a layoff. They give you severance. And, they, you know, it's not a considerate fire. There's no cause. Everybody gets lined up, you yeah. know. Um, and uh, I'm like, all right, well, it's 10 in the morning. Uh, she goes, go, go see a movie. I'm like, go see a movie. I'm like, all right. So I mo- walk down to the uh, Playa Vista Cinemark. And the only thing playing at 10 o'clock in the morning is uh, Kung Fu Panda 3. <laughs> okay. So I'm like, yeah, I like the Kung Fu Panda franchise. <laughs> you know, and I, and, I, um, and I watch it and I come out and then, you know, I go home and we talk about it. And she goes, no, you came out here for a reason. You know, this shouldn't stop you, right? So I'm like, all right. So we figured it out. Like she, she got back to work for a little bit. I started freelancing for a little bit. We figured it out, then I got like another job. I'm like, yeah. all right, this will keep us stable for a little longer, and I'll keep writing at night when I'm like done with my job, and it'll be hard, but like we're gonna get through it. This was our dream. And then ten months later, I got laid off from that job, and like you know we're closing down the LA operations. We're like, oh okay, I'm in LA. They're like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's interesting. And then um, I call my wife again. I'm like, well, you never believe it, and she's like, what? It's just, I'm like, well, I just got laid off again. And she's like, oh, she's like, what do you care? I'm like, well, like, what do I care? And she goes, uh, by that point, she had become the creative director of this tech startup in Santa Monica. And she started making a lot of money. And she goes, who cares? Like, we don't, like, you came out here for a reason, you know? And you've been out here for two and a half years working, like, these really stupid jobs that you know you hate. Uh, and you do it for the money. Like, what was the reason you came here? Yeah. You know, what was your journey? <laughs> go watch a <your> movie. <laughs> I'm like, all right. <laughs> I didn't go watch a movie. Uh, I actually just picked her up and we went to get the kids. Uh, <laughs> it was <laughs> no Kung Fu Panda this time. And then um, it was a strange layoff because they wanted me to keep working for two months. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. I remember that. And they're like, well, you know, the clients really like you. So we have to like transition the business to New York. Would you mind working for two more months? We'll keep paying you and then we'll give you severance. And then I wind down. I'm like, well, I don't have that much to do for two months, so of course I'll take your money. <laughs> you know? uh, yeah. And then I was um, just contemplating, like, why did, why did I come here? And um, there was this thing that always bothered me about the world. Like, I didn't feel like we looked at politics the right way. Mm-hmm. Right? And I'm like, we just, like, we don't look at them in the values we're supposed to look at them. We respond to people in the wrong way. And... Uh, we caricaturize each other in the wrong way, and we're divisive for the wrong way. And I'm like, we should do something about it. Mm-hmm. Well, we should do something about it, then I should do something about it, right? <laughs> so I'm like, all right, <laughs> let's do something about it. Like, I came here to do something, let's do something about it. And th- that was great. And then I remember I got the idea on a Friday afternoon, and I, like, messaged you on Facebook, Chelsea. I'm like, what do you do tomorrow for lunch? <laughs> 
<laughs> she goes, nothing. I'm like, all right. We met for lunch. I told you that day. And you're like, let's do it. And I'm like, yeah, we're going to do a podcast. And you, you had shared with me, like, you know, like your process of going, like, um, processing politics and what it means to you. I'm like, this is great. We'll we'll get through this together. Yeah. And I was in a weird spot, like, yeah. at that time. Right. And was struggling with, like wrestling with the fact that I believe so something so different than so many other people in my life right. when it came to politics and that some people can look at it and go, oh, well, it's just politics. But for me, yeah. it meant like my core values and my morals is what it turned out. Right. Turned out to be just come from a different place than a lot of these, a lot, a lot of other people in my life. Right. And I was really struggling with that. And, um, and using the podcast, it's allowed me to like come to terms with the fact that um, just because we come from a different moral place doesn't mean we are terrible people Yes. to each other. Yes. Because I struggle right. with um, looking at someone in a negative light because they have a different moral background. Right. But I'm sure that they also struggle that with that with me. Yes. And so now I can look at it and see it, not just, oh, it's just politics. Yeah. Because that's also just brushing it to the side. Right. But I can look at it and go like, we we get to this to a different point because right. we start at a different point. Right. And they have a coherent worldview. They don't have like um, a broken version of our worldview. Right. You know, they're like the, the the frames are each in and of themselves complete. Yeah. Right. And we use one more or we use the other one more. But it's not like a lot of times like you see in Twitter all the time, they're like, um, their response to something is a, a, always a caricature of what the other person is thinking. Yeah. I'm like, no, you have to actually understand what they're thinking. Right. And and for me, like, um, this Kevin Williamson thing came up where he he's writing at the National Review, and he represents, we talked about him previously in the podcast, he re- represents the gut of the conservative, mm-hmm. right? And then he writes this thing like, women who get abortion should be hanged. Right. Whoa! I didn't see this. Yeah, and then the then it was like all in the news, and then the Atlantic ends up firing him because it's like, oh, we can't have that uh, in our on our banner, right? And and people are like, oh, it's a horrible thing. I'm like, it is a really horrible thing, but that's how they actually feel, you know. And the reason they don't say it is because saying it out loud is so repugnant. But yeah, it's how they actually feel. It's not a caricature of how they feel. Like right. what he got to the point is like they're doing something they shouldn't be doing, and they should be punished for it. What they're doing is murder, and so if somebody murders someone, you should be punished for it. You know, and like yeah. we, and so it's so repugnant that conservatives developed this alternate theory about abortion so they can speak to it in 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 the world, right? So they say like the the mother is the second victim. The baby is the first victim, the mother is the second victim, and the only perpetrator is the doctor who does the procedure, right? But they didn't really believe that. They don't really believe it. Right. They believe the mother does this. Yeah. Right? And that's why when when Trump was in the, the primaries, he goes, yeah, we're going to punish women who get abortions. And then they were like, no, 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 we don't, we don't say that. Because that's that's how it made sense. So, oh well, if abortions are illegal, the women are the ones doing it, right? right? But then conservatives had to develop this 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 um, almost like scaffolding to their argument, right. where the woman's the second victim. That's not really what they believe, right. but th- no. that's the only way they could put it out into the world uh, and not everyone be instantly. So, like that that was such a clear example of like um, like we had to have the right conversation to say like. Don't think Kevin Williamson is disgusting for thinking this. Mm-hmm. Like, that's actually how they believe, and we have to address it. 
we have to confront it. We have not, and not say like, no, you can't think that way, but like get to the core. Like, why do you really think that? Like, yeah. why do you really think the woman is doing that? You right. know, like. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. Like, I think that um, a lot of what we've talked about over the last year can honestly be highlighted by our one conversation we had with Dr. Lakoff. Yes. Which yeah. is awesome. Right. But when he so plainly said, I asked him sort of question of like, why is, does that seem so difficult for us to do? And right. he's, he, I can't remember exactly right. what the context was, but he said, well, that would require people to work really hard on themselves. Yeah. And, and that is something that not a lot of people want to do. Yeah. And honestly, even when I'm working on myself, I, it's, you have to face a lot of your own demons. Right. And you have to be willing to admit to things you believe or things that you do that say something about what you believe. Right. And then decide if that's really the person you want to be. Yeah. And that is really painful. Yeah. And really difficult right. to, to, to face your own demons. Yeah. And so this whole political explosion in the last year right. has made people... People are all talking about politics way more than they ever were, but they also, the second they say something, those little fights that happen on Facebook where someone makes like a big statement on Facebook and then a bunch of people start commenting. (laughs) What happens is you have to be able to follow up whatever you said with um, like either proof or you have to be able to openly admit this, how you feel. Right. And... That is, if you have to say, if you have to put into words for people to absorb how you feel about something, yeah. you 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 have a mirror there. Exactly. And you're yeah. looking at yourself and you're going, wow, this is how I feel. Yeah. Am I okay with the fact that this is how I feel? Yeah. And am I okay with the fact that this is how someone else feels? Right. And, you know, the answer isn't always Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the answer is often not yes, which yeah. is yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's yeah. that's what what leads to you trying to work on yourself and right. make yourself better. I, I don't know if I talked about this in depth, but there was the time I took Lucas to Venice Beach. We go there all the time. Mm-hmm. And so a homeless person sleeping on the... Cause we, I want to give a concrete yeah. example of this. And Lucas asked me, why is that person sleeping on the beach? And my initial reaction was like, this person made the wrong decisions in their lives. And this is why they ended up there. And that was, I, I instantly was confronted by. This is what I, you think. This is what I think. And I was very challenged by it. And it was one of those things that I don't think I liked what I thought. Yeah. In the moment. And I thought I was motivated to do the right thing because I wanted to teach Lucas agency in his life. Mm-hmm. But it did not really reflect my belief about how homelessness as an institution exists. Right? Yeah. This makes me wonder if why one of the so i'm not a parent and yeah. i certainly hear um people speak about being a parent all the time right yeah and with d- many perspectives <laughs> <Yeah>. and <laughs> viewpoints right and maybe one day i will become a parent and yeah. i will understand those things uh-huh. but i do wonder if one of the things that makes parenting so difficult uh-huh. is the fact that you are constantly confronted with a mirror looking, showing you how you think and how you feel. It, it is certainly, um, you have to put all your thoughts through the prism again. 
right? Because they come out of you. Like right. the, the things you had inside of you, they come out of you when you're transmitting them. Right. And that was one concrete example where I was surprised at what came out of my mouth when I said it to him. Cause th- and you can yeah. either choose to ignore that yeah. or you can choose to reflect on, oh my gosh, this is how I feel. Right. Do I want to feel this way? Yeah. And then reconsider that and then yeah. work on yourself. But you're also parenting and trying to keep your children alive. <laughs> right. And so I'm wondering if, if this is this is a big part of the inner turmoil of being a parent. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's part of the it, – it's you have to reconcile things that in you that were like there right they mm-hmm. have to make decisions about them before you pass them on right for example and so yeah that's that's part of it that's like it was just because whatever you told lucas that's now how, what he thinks about people who sleep on the ground that that is something that uh that that was his first impression of what to think about them before uh-huh. he himself must think about what he's going to uh, similarly, we were, you know, we were church for Easter and he's asking us why we're going around the church and following Jesus' tomb. And then that's when I oh, that's was right. confronted with having to express to him what death was in our conception of death, mm-hmm. right? Jesus died. And then he goes, why did he die? I'm like, Jesus died because he believed in something. And there were people who disagreed with what he believed in. Like he had a vision of the world that other people didn't agree with and they killed him for it. But that made him that brave. That is so heavy to talk to a five-year-old about that. But why? Yeah. But, but I also love the fact that you did talk to him about that. Yeah. Why ask him to participate in the rituals if you're going to lie about that? Yeah. Yeah. No, I yeah. I, I, totally appreciate it. And also, <laughs> yeah. I think that that's an example of you not underestimating what your kid can understand. Yeah. I mean, he's going to be a better person for it. I hope so. I mean, that's... That's the goal, <laughs> right? The goal. Yeah, so I, I do want to close on a reflection. Like, um, when we were starting this, some people ask us about the title. And they're like, oh, maybe your, your title should be a little more, like, um, uh, political in its nature. And I was always adamant from the beginning that the point of this podcast is the choice. We can talk about. It was always about, like, we had a choice to talk about through those frames, through the frame of the elephant, with our own frames. Mm-hmm. We had a choice of our values or other values, right? And this journey of doing the podcast was wonderful because it also reminded me just doing it of the choice we have. The Calvary is not somebody else. The Calvary is inside of you. Right. You came out here, I'm like, why hasn't it happened in LA yet? It goes, well, why haven't you made it happen was the, the real statement, you know? Right. And it was incredibly, the, 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 the journey has empowered me at least, you know, to like, you there's nobody else coming to save you (laughs) you you are the person that is going to have to wrestle with this you are the person that has to like teach your kid what homeless person you're the person that has to like talk to mature you're the person that has to like if you have a vision of the world you are the one that's going to have to do it there's nobody there and just step forward into yourself and do it you know and that's so Michael Zanetti's 2028? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> mayor of Culver City, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah. Mayor of Culver City. <laughs> yeah. You should do it. I should do it. The 20,000 person. Donate to Michael's campaign. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be amazing. Maybe we'll do it. That'll, that'll be, um, we'll follow it live. <laughs> your your first bill would be, do you even have a bill if you're the mayor? But your first, your first like decision would be like, uh, we need to have a Greek day. Yes, <laughs> the Great Greek Appreciation. We need Greek Appreciation Day. <laughs> Greek Independence Day. Well, Specifically, Justin Culver City. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna, Greek Independence Day. We're gonna show up downtown Culver City, drink some ouzo, 
Roast the lamb. Ugh, Uzo is the worst. I'm going to roast the lamb in downtown. <laughs> City. In the street. In the street. That's how you do it. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Well, on that note, I'm Michael Zanetis. And I'm Chelsea O'Connor. And that was We Can Talk About. I guess see you sometime. I'm holding out for some impeachment proceedings. You never know. I'm holding out for the (laughs) the 20-year reunion. (laughs) Thanks for listening, you guys. Thank you. It's been a blast. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for joining We Can Talk About. If you're a fan of the pod, please share your favorite episodes on your Facebook page or Twitter feed. We'd love to meet your friends.